Well, now turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 63. Isaiah chapter 63, as we continue our study through the book of Isaiah. And this morning, I'd like to take up verses 1 through 14 of Isaiah 63. So let's stand together and hear the very word of God. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the people, no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Verse 7, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. According to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. And then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea? With the shepherd of his flock, where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? Who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm? Dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. As a beast goes down into the valley and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, your name is glorious and you have made it glorious. Make it more glorious. We pray, Father, that the redemption that Jesus brought for us would be an amazing thing that would raise us all up one more time to exalt in your salvation, your work. Father, that we would see you better, that we would know your power, your glory, what you have already done for us. Father, open our eyes to see it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. What do, you, what do you get out of this passage, especially the first six verses? As you read the prophetic language and you read the testimony of God himself, there seems to be an interaction, a question-answer between the narrator and God responding here. But what do you get in the testimony of God? One of the things we want to do as we study God's Word is to put aside all the preconceptions we have of God. For some reason, all these bad conceptions concerning Jesus, concerning God, floods into our minds. I don't know if it's demonic or what is it, but we got to get that aside. we got to get, okay, God, reveal yourself to me this morning. Help me to understand who you are. And so as you read this, what are you getting Well, number one, God's passionate. Did anybody catch that this morning? I didn't read it with all that much passion, did I? Did I? Probably not that much. But as as you read this, what do you get? That God, God is not dispassionate. God's not detached. He's not giving us a clinical examination of man's problem and the solution, is he? God is violent. God is full of anger and wrath. God is passionate. That's what you're getting from this text. And I know it shocked you when you heard it this morning. Is that God responding in that way? 
Why, why is God revealing himself in all this wrath as a mighty man of, of war, heading out to war, and there's blood everywhere, and he's shedding the blood, and he's overwhelming the enemy? What, what is it? God is personal. God takes it personally. God is emotional in the best way we can understand it. Obviously, we use anthropomorphic language in terms of understanding God, but here it is. God is revealing himself to us in military language. This is intense. This is violent. Again, it could be something of a turnoff to people who have the wrong conception of God as they read Old Testament and New Testament. God is a consuming fire, isn't he? Now the tone changes between verses 6 and 7, if you catch that. You can look at it if you want. There's a tone that changes immediately between 6 and 7. First is this wrath, this justice, and this mighty man of valor rolling up his sleeves and getting it done. And then we we speak of the loving kindness of God in verse 7. Imagine you were sitting next to the butcher from Boulder out of a flight of Denver. Now, you know this guy, right? He is the most infamous man probably in America. He's killed more babies than anybody else. He's had a career of 50 years, killed at least 10,000, probably 20,000 babies. He's by far the most, I would say, prolific mass murderer in America. So there you are on a flight out of Denver, sitting next to the butcher from Boulder. And you know this guy's killed 20,000 people. So there you are sitting next to him. What do you think about it? How are you feeling towards him? What would you say to him? Let me ask you this. Do you have a commitment to justice? Hmm? You have a commitment to justice? You have a commitment to mercy? What's your commitment? You say, well, these things feel like something of tension in me. I'm sitting next to him. What am I going to say? Well, see, that's what I'm talking about here. What would you say to the person who has no mercy for the abortionist? What would you say to him? No mercy for the, for the butcher from Boulder sitting next to him on that seat on a flight out of Denver. No mercy for the abortionist. None. What would you say to him? What, do you, what would you say to the guy who has all kinds of mercy for the man, but no mercy for human babies, and no sense of justice whatsoever? What would you say to him? You see what I'm saying? There is, it appears to be something of attention. But here, let me tell you that God is committed to both mercy and justice. Both, and we are to be the same. We are are to be committed to mercy and justice as we stand in front of those abortuaries in Denver or anywhere else. Man, we've got a commitment to mercy for people who kill their babies. We have a commitment to justice for the babies and the blood that is shed. Is it a both hand? Yes, it's a both hand. But let me tell you this, God is ultimately committed to justice and mercy. You have no idea. You have no idea how committed God is to justice and to mercy. God is ultimately committed to both at the very same time. That's not a contradiction, brothers and sisters. God is extremely just. Extremely. You, You see, is God just when he sees six million Jews slaughtered by the Nazis or these babies or anywhere else, is God full of justice and wrath? And will he accomplish his justice? Or will God just let it go? He won't let it go. He's committed to it, brothers and sisters. He's committed to justice. He's extremely violent. He's extremely merciful. Extremely merciful. Extremely merciful. And extremely just. At the same time. And as we said before, that converges where? At the cross of Jesus Christ. There it is. You say, why is this man suffering? This is the Son of God. God gave up His only begotten Son. Why did God give Him up to the cross? 
to a cruel death because God's justice had to be met and God wanted to have mercy at the same time. Amen. And let me say this, that our conception of God is not enough. You say, why are we listening to this message one more time? We're just not there yet. Amen, brothers and sisters. We haven't seen it quite yet. We don't understand it. We don't understand his competence to save, his commitment to save, his commitment to justice, his commitment to mercy. We, we just can't quite get our minds around it. Our conception of God is not enough. It's never enough. In the terrible predicament of this world, and man, it is a terrible predicament that we're in. Death is inescapable. We're all going to die unless Jesus comes back first. Death is inescapable. Sin, Satan's got a grip on people. We need a solution. The solution is God. We, we have to come face to face at some point with the impossibility of our condition. There you are facing death on your deathbed. You got an option? No, you don't. You're up against the hard fact of your death. You're face to face with it. It's going to happen. It's right there. How can you avoid it? Can you opt out of it? No, you can't. There you are in front of it. It's impossible. These are impossibilities. Only God can deal with this. And so, the thing I want you to understand is the commitment God has to this. We've talked about it already. He's committed to it. This is, this is the whole sense of the passage, pulling up his arm sleeves, saying, I am going to get it done. I'm going to do it. I will do it. Any questions? I will do it. I'm going to do it. I've set out to do it, and I will do it. That's, see, that's the passage here. That's what he's saying here in this passage. Okay, two, two parts of the passage. First, the testimony of God, and then the testimony of the prophet. So let's take it apart. First, verse 1, God is mighty to save. Children, God is very mighty. Nothing is too hard for God. You say, well, i got a problem. It's, it's called death. I've been afraid of death all my life. I'm terrified of it. Every time I go on a flight, I think to myself, okay, if this thing goes down, what am I going to do? I'll have 30 seconds to go. What am I going to say? I'm going to stand up. We're going down at 30 seconds. I want to stand up. I want to say something. What am I going to say? Death approaches, whether it be on a flight or anywhere else. But we can't save ourselves from the inevitable, but God can. And that's the point here. God is mighty to save. Look at the first verse. Who is this that comes from Edom? Dyed garments from Bolster. We'll talk about Edom in just a moment. The one is glorious in apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So again, who is this coming from Basra? All red, blood up and down, the horse's bridles. He's got blood all the way top to bottom. His sword is completely covered in blood, both swords, whatever it is. All bloody. Who is this bloody man coming out of Edom? It's the question here. God, mighty to save. Getting her done. Something none of us can do. We can't do it for ourselves. The first thing we got to admit, can't save myself. It's the first thing. His arm has not been shortened. We read about this all the way through, haven't we? He's good for it. Be very sure of this. God intends to save, and this is what we're getting out of this. God intends to save. Comes down this world, he sees the problems, sees the evil in it, sees the sin in it, sees the death in it, sees the imminent destruction. Sees the potential of condemnation, hellfire forever. And he says, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to save. I've come to save. God has planned to save. He intends to save. He's promised to save. He's mighty to save. And he will save. That's the message. Now, this isn't just salvation from Edom. Now, why Edom? Edom is, well, there's Moab, there's Assyria, there's Egypt, there's Syria, there's Babylon, there's Greece, there's Rome. How many enemies are the Philistines? Did I mention the Philistines? How many enemies for God's people in the Old Testament? How many? How many enemies for God's people in the Old Testament? I can't count them. So many. 
just surrounding, doing everything they can to the power of Satan to obliterate the people of God, right? I mean, they're all lining up. They're just, they're going to destroy Israel over 2,000 years, and they're being surrounded constantly, and yet Israel continues to remain, and to remain one of my favorite maps I've ever seen is the Assyrian Empire. Anybody see that? The Assyrian Empire, get a, get a picture of it. It's, you know, all of the Middle East, all of that, all the way up into Syria, up into Turkey, and then down into uh, Babylon and so forth. Okay, the Assyrian Empire is all, they're one little dot in the middle of it, Jerusalem. And there's a little circle around the dot saying they didn't quite get Jerusalem. Syrian Empire didn't quite pull off Jerusalem. The one city that Sennacherib couldn't take down. God defended his people over and over again. But his people had a spiritual problem, didn't they? It wasn't just this physical military threat to the people of God. It was the spiritual problem they were facing. So God is going to do this. And the prophet has made this point over and over again. This is why we've said this before. Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. The Mormons are wrong. The cults are wrong. Why are they wrong? Because of this passage. God says, I am going down there to personally save them. I'm not going to let a prophet do it. I'm not going to let some other man do it. I'm going to do it myself. And brothers and sisters, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. What does the name Jesus mean? Yahweh saves. That's what it means. Joshua, Yahweh saves. We're going to save ourselves. No man's going to save ourselves. No prophet's going to save us. God will save us. Yahweh will save. Not going to be just any old person. Not going to be Jesus sans the nature of God. No, it will be God who will come down here and save us. And he does through his only begotten son. So to be saved, I cannot possibly overstate this point. How are you going to be saved? How, are people saved in this room? Are you saved? To be saved, one must want to be saved. Is that obvious? Okay, the guy in the deep water out in the Pacific Ocean, going down for the last time, helicopters over him, says, I don't really need to be saved. Doesn't reach out, doesn't want to be saved, he's not going to be saved. God puts that in us, obviously. We, We know that. But the first thing is, in terms of our response to God's salvation, man, you've got to be want to be saved. And then you've got to believe that God is competent to save you. You, you cannot doubt it. You've you, you got to believe that God is ultimately competent to save you. You're not going to reach out to something that you do not believe is competent to bring about that salvation for you. That, that's just not going to happen. So that's why this point is so essential God is coming, and he is mighty to save. He's quite competent to save. He has the ability to save. All right, second point. He came to kill. That's verses 2 and 3. He came to kill. He came to shed blood. And he has a strong sense of the enemy. He has come to attack an enemy. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. Again, this presents God as a man of war. We find that all the way through the Old Testament. God is the Lord of armies. He's the Lord of armies. I don't really speak to him that much, very much. We don't pray to him as the Lord of armies. But that's who he is. Jesus, a man of battle. Joshua brings forth salvation for his people. He rides into battle, wins his wars. And there's a strong sense of the enemy, that there is an enemy. As as believers, we have to believe that there is an enemy. I think the world is somewhat aware of evil, I guess. Usually it's Christians who are evil. We have to make sure that we're identifying the right enemy as defined by God himself, not arbitrarily by people who just want to 
come up with their own list. No, there's an enemy. There's an enemy in the world, and he's out to, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And this enemy must be destroyed. And that's the mindset. The mindset is, when you walk in here this morning, you have to say, there's an enemy out there, and he's got to be destroyed. That we need the military mindset as well. That if, if you're like, hey, it's just detente. You know, we can make friends with the devil. We can make friends with the world. My sin in my life, Satan influencing me, hey, you know, I have a little bit of a detente going on with Satan. No, no, that doesn't work. We, we have declared war. God has declared war. And this war is not over till it's over. And, and that's the mindset. There's an enemy. And so in order for there to be a savior, he's going to have to be a warrior. The savior is going to have to be like Joshua of the Old Testament. He's going to have to be a warrior. He's going to have to have a warrior mindset. He's going to have to be violent. He's going to have to ride determinedly into the fray and crush his enemies. Have you seen, anybody seen war movies or maybe documentaries or you've seen warriors? Guys with swords. Guys with AK-47s or whatever it is. I don't know what they use. They go in, they kick doors down, and they shoot people. This is my understanding. I mean, what is a warrior to you? You know, when you think about a warrior, is it somebody who's kind of timid, half-hearted, I'm sure, kind of passive type? Is that how you configure the soldier, the, the conqueror, the winner, the one who comes to save you? Is that who he is? Or is he somebody who is determined, violent, utterly destroying his enemies? This is Jesus. Let us go hence. The prince of this world has nothing on me. Remember those were his last words in the upper room. He was going into battle. Do you sense any timidity? Do you sense any holding back? Do you sense any half-heartedness? Let us go hence. The enemy has nothing on me. I believe this message is needful today. I believe one of the reasons why many people sitting in churches aren't getting saved is because they're not getting the gospel. They're not getting this message. Listen, I want this Jesus. I need this Jesus. If Jesus has this sort of softy approach, now, now, it's okay, I'm sorry, you've sinned. I can't do very much about that. I mean, you're a sinner, I get it, I accept you. I forgive you, now go and sin some more. And I'll forgive you even more. I don't want that Jesus. Everybody with me here? I want a Jesus has come to overcome sin and death for me. So much of the modern conception of salvation is antithetical to this biblical view. What's the biblical language? Let's, let's get back to that. What is it? You shall call his name Joshua, for he will save his people from their sins. You can call him Jesus if you want. You can call him Joshua. It's the same word. You will call his name Joshua. Who is Joshua? He's the one who takes the promised land. He's the one who wins all his battles. You shall call his name Joshua, for he will save his people from their sins. He has come to destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He has come to destroy the works of the devil. And there are so many that need to be released right now, all around us. Can you see that? Can you see it? You know, I mean, so many people 
all around us. They're under the bondage. Satan's got them. They can't, they cannot sin. They'll tell you that. I have to do this. This is my lifestyle. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. So why the reference to Edom in the passage? Um, Edom is who? Edom is the descendants of Esau. He's the worst possible enemy of the people of God. Why? Because it's apostates that are the worst enemies. They know the true God. They heard of him. They cast him off. Always the most pronounced enemy of God. The modern atheist, virulent in opposition to God's people. Not so much, you know, the animists in Africa. It's the atheists in the universities that are just the most rabid enemies to the true and living God. Why? Because they know God and they hate Him. They've heard about Him and they have a passion against Him. And that's Edom. That was the picture of Edom. And they became the primary enemy of God. But what did Jesus come to kill? He came to destroy Satan. He came, that's what we read there in Hebrews 2, right? That Jesus came to destroy the devil and release those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus came to destroy the devil. And who is the devil? Well, go back in time. The devil, before he was fallen, was right there next to God. He was the ultimate Judas. Right? The devil's the ultimate Judas. Who is Judas? One of the close, one of the twelve disciples. So Satan is the ultimate Judas, the first Judas, right? He was right there. Lifted himself up, apostatized against God, became the primary enemy of God. And now he's Judas to the 100th power. So we all have a sense of the enemy. The problem is we need to configure the enemy rightly. We found the enemy and it is us. Or we have found the enemy and it is working in us. Or we found the enemy and it is drawing us in. We found the enemy, it's sin. We found the enemy, it's Satan. Children, the enemy is sin and Satan. That's it. Somebody told me this story, four guys in a prison. I thought this was interesting. Four guys in a, a holding cell. So imagine, there are four of these men in a holding cell. The first guy was in there for driving drunk. And he said, well, at least I am not like this guy who robbed a bank. And then we talked to the guy who robbed the bank. He said, well, I'm, at least I'm not like this guy over here who abused children. And then turn to the next guy, and the, the, the guy was a murderer. And the, the, and the guy abused children said, well, at least I'm not like this guy who murdered somebody. And then the guy who murdered somebody said, well, at least I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm not a cannibal. What's the problem with these people? What's the problem with these people? They're all guilty, as defined by the law. Now, by the law of God, we're all guilty. Isn't that right? And the big sin here is self-righteousness. The big sin. The big sin, well, at least I'm not like this other guy over here. It's a Pharisee. Thank God I'm not like this guy who murdered. Thank God I'm not like this guy who abused children. Thank God I'm like this guy who robs banks. Thank God I haven't driven drunk my whole life. That's the way the majority think they're self-righteous Pharisees. And God doesn't receive them. All of our sins, wages of all of our sins, death, all of our sin is rebellion against God. It comes from a heart that is opposed to God, that hates God, that idolizes self and refuses to submit itself to God. We all deserve hell. And the guy who compares himself to others and casts blame on others, there's no hope for him. Hey, the, I, Personally, I think all of those guys, right down to Jeffrey Dahmer, can get saved. In fact, Jeffrey Dahmer confessed faith in Christ just before he died. As many of you know, I interviewed the pastor that baptized him just before he died. 
But I'll tell you what, there are going to be some Jeffrey Dahmers in heaven, but there will be a lot of guys who drive, drove drunk and had some sort of minor faults, and they're going to be suffering in hellfire forever because of their pride and self-righteousness and refusal to bow the knee to Christ. And, and because they, they never humbled themselves, because they never fell down on their faces at the publican and said, God, oh God, have mercy on me. Oh God, I'm overwhelmed by my own sin. Oh God, my rebellion. Oh God. Satan's got a grip on me. Set me free. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because they didn't say that, they will burn in hell forever. So, brothers and sisters, we have found the enemy. We have found the enemy, and it is us. It is in us, it is with us. And Jesus came to set the captives free, Jesus came to save. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So now, children, here's the third point. Verse 4, Jesus has come to redeem. Redeem the captives. He's the redeemer. For the day of vengeance is my heart. The year of my redeemed has come. The popular blockbuster movie out on kidnapping. Little children be kidnapped. South America, other places around the world. And these kids have been rescued. So this, this, this is about rescue. Jesus came to redeem or rescue. Same idea. Same idea. If you want to understand what, what redemption is, it's what, whatever guys are doing to rescue children who've been kidnapped into the most horrible conditions. That's, that's the word redeem. That's it. Jesus came to rescue us. It's a beautiful thing. By the way, real quick, the effect of these movies will either increase the level of hardening to the problems that sin has brought on our society or it will engage action. So I'm warning you not to watch the movie if you're only going to be hardened by it. That's what I'm saying. You watch this movie, I realize this is a total aside, but you watch this movie, you're hardened to the sin, or you will engage action. You're not, you're not going to come out of that place crying over everybody else's sins. You're coming out crying over your sins. And all the ways in which you have lusted like these evil men are lusting. So you need to come out of that movie theater engaging action, mortifying sinful lust, repenting, fighting down porn with every fiber of your being, fighting down abortion that kills over half the children in this country, and revenging all disobedience when your obedience has been matured or perfected. So I'm a, a little apprehensive about people watching the movie. If the nation won't repent, these movies don't spur to action, they're going to harden the people who watch them in their sins. And the movies won't change anything. There's no true repentance. But the illustration is apropos for us because the rescuer is Jesus. The Jesus comes to rescue us. Now, when somebody comes to rescue, you can do one of two things, or both. You can kill the kidnappers or pay the ransom. That's, that's the way it works with kidnapping. Okay? Listen. Jesus does both. Try it. Jesus does both. He kills the kidnapper, he pays the ransom, and he sets us free. Hallelujah. He gets it done. He gets it done. Now, I, I believe that if anybody in here resonates to this and says, Amen, hallelujah, you're saved. I believe you're saved. I believe that if, if you believe in Jesus as Savior, then you're saved. I believe this. I believe that if you believe that Jesus comes to kill Satan and sin and deliver you and redeem you from sin and Satan, if you believe that this morning, then you're saved. I believe this. Well, that's what the Word of God tells us, isn't it? Now, the kidnapper, the slave trader is sin and Satan. And verses 11 13, God's salvation is pictured in the most powerful and poignant way by the great deliverance of the Red Sea. And so that's why it's always brought back, because that's the picture, the Old Testament picture for the New Testament reality. 
And so what is the ransom price paid at the Red Sea to set the people free from the captivity of the Egyptians? You know what the ransom price was? About 50,000 firstborn sons of the Egyptians. It's a lot of bloodshedding for the redemption of God's people. That's the thing that kicked it loose. The ransom price was 50,000 dead sons. You say, that's pretty much a big price. Well, let me tell you about another price that was paid. The price of God's only begotten Son on the cross. That's the price for our deliverance from sin and Satan on our behalf. The enemy was destroyed at the Red Sea and God's people were saved. And and the picture there comes all the way through Exodus, right? But I wanted to give you just a little bit of explanation. This is God speaking to Moses. I'm going to do this. I think they're still at the burning bush at this point in Exodus chapter 6. So he's explaining to Moses what they're going to do, what he's going to do to set the people free. Now listen to what he says in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do. Okay, now who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? God's going to do it. And you will see what I will do. Now, verse 6 of the same passage. I just want you to follow this language. Listen. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. He's telling Moses, you go back to Israel and you tell these children of Israel, I am the Lord. And now listen carefully. And I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. Who's going to do it? God's going to do it. And I will deliver you from their bondage. Who's going to do it? God's going to do it. And I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. Who's going to do it? Who's going to redeem? God's going to do it. God's arm will do it. Now what does it mean? He uses this reference here in this passage. That he is bringing his own arm into it. He does that in in Exodus 6. He's doing it in Isaiah 63. God's arm is going to do it. Now, does that mean? When when I say, when I say this, I am coming down, honey, to pull you out of the snow. My wife is sometimes wound up in three feet of snow on the side of the road on a winter day in Elbert County. Okay. So if I say, I am coming down to get you out. And I will use my mighty arm to do it. What are you thinking? You're thinking, I'm not using the excursion. Isn't that what you're thinking? That's what you're thinking, isn't it? He's not using Carrie Kramer. I'm trying to think the strongest guy in our church. Probably Carrie. Wouldn't you agree? His son is nodding. Okay, good. I'm not sending Carrie Kramer. I'm, I'm not using my excursion. I'm telling my wife, just hang in there, honey. I'm pulling you out with my own mighty arm. Some of you are laughing, smiling a little bit. I understand because my mighty arm is not going to pull that out. But that's the point here, brothers and sisters. This is the point. God will do it. God is doing it. He's not using an angel. He's not using a human being. He's not using anybody else. He is doing it with his own arm. He's getting involved personally, not sending Kerry Kramer out. He's going out down there, and he's going to take care of business himself. That's what it's saying here. Yahweh saves. God saves. Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I'm almost done with ministry. It's almost over for me. Now, I don't know what almost over it means, but I just get the sense I don't have many years left. I want you to take away this one thing. One thing that Kevin Swanson was all about in the ministry here at this church for the few years they labored here. Jesus. That Kevin Swanson believed that Jesus came down to do it. And he did it. Jesus. Yahweh saves. God saves. And he did it in Jesus. His only begotten son. 
The Redeemer is Jesus, and the price paid was his own blood. That's the message. That's it. And then finally, or fourthly, it's too early to say finally. He came to do it alone. Now, just in case anybody said, well, you know what, it takes two. You know, we got to get two people together. It's me and God. We together are going to save me. Just in case, you know, there's a little bit of that doctrine that hangs in there. No, no. I looked, but there was no one to help. I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm, my own arm, will brought salvation for me in my own fury. It has sustained me. His own passion, his own commitment, his own promise, his own power, came down here to make it happen. And this is the problem with Arminius. Charles Finney and about 95% of American evangelicalism. They lost this emphasis. God doesn't need our help to save us. Boy, if that message would resonate across America to every single church, praise God, right? I mean, God doesn't need your help to save you. Boy, if we could get that down straight, brothers and sisters. He doesn't need your help to redeem you, to save you, to regenerate you, to set you free from your sin, to forgive your sins for any of these things. God doesn't need your stinking help. And he doesn't need any pretense and hype. He doesn't need a marketing program. Like somehow, if we just kind of market it well, we, we get a hopping band up here, and we get a little bit more emotion flowing, and we can just manipulate people into believing these things and so forth and so on. God doesn't need your help. God doesn't need any of this. He doesn't need you to talk it up. He doesn't need a revivalist to help the palsied man into the pool. You know, let's get a revivalist down here to help the palsied man into the pool and maybe some kind of fakey angel thing might happen and then we can pretend this guy's been transformed and healed for the rest of his life and then we'll have a big pretense uh, of worship and a big church where everybody pretends like something happened. No, God doesn't need any of that. God doesn't need us to talk it up. God doesn't need us to give it a marketing program. God doesn't need us to help him. With our salvation, he does it himself. His redemption's effective in and of itself. It speaks for itself. Okay, and then fifthly, he's not going to let anything get in the way of this salvation. Verse 6 just seems a little strange because I think he's speaking of other forms of, of powers and empires and such that are pressing against God's kingdom and God's efforts of redemption Verse 6, I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. And this is just God not letting anything get in the way of that salvation. The kings of the earth, they do set themselves immediately against the Lord and against his anointed. That happened in Acts 3 and 4, right? Immediately. There's all this opposition. And there is opposition. I've been reading about all these missionaries trying to get the gospel into Sudan for the first time in 1905. The first three teams, they all died except one. And, and he kept coming back. And the Muslims were against them. The witch doctors were against them. Massive forces of witchcraft came against them. And yet nothing stood in the way. The gospel came through. And praise God, tremendous things happened. So you think Kim Il-jong is in the way of the gospel in North Korea? I don't think so. Nero, anybody else, not going to get in the way of this. The worst case scenario is presented with the beast in Revelation 14. It's granted to him to make war with the saints. Authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. But Revelation 14, verse 9, a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image, receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, which means that 
God is going to go after anybody who submits to this worldly power. And uh, Revelation 19, again, the armies of heaven came down. Jesus is at the head of them, faithful and true in righteousness. He judges, makes war. His eyes to flame of fire on his head were many crowns. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he shall strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. What is what's happening here? What's happening is that the word of God is coming forth to conquer the nations, which means the preaching of the word of God is coming out into Sudan and everywhere else around the world. And there is nothing that any of these nations can possibly do because Jesus at the same time is personally involved. And what is he doing? He's bringing nations down. He's crushing these people who are in opposition to the gospel. And he won't allow his gospel to languish ever until the very end. Okay, let's move on to verses 7 to 14. Briefly, the testimony of the prophet steps in and the remembrance of the Red Sea redemption. So what we find here is, yeah, we have this, this violence, but then we have this tender, loving care for his people. And this is the rescue of the fair maiden. So, so again, I want you to see that this, this man of war is coming down on this horse to rescue the fair maiden. He seems to have a very strong concern and a loving kindness and a mercy upon the fair maiden. So, so you've got this violence, and then you have this tender care of this fair maiden. He's, he's grabbing and he's putting on his horse, and he's, he's riding away with her. Uh, God loves Israel and pours out his blessing upon the nation. God is a great judge. He's the Lord of armies over the earth, but he's also full of mercy and love and concern for his people. Now, the best movies you ever watch, and this is what I've heard of this recent blockbuster on this saving mission for young children to be kidnapped and such. People come out just crying. They're just overwhelmed. Some of my friends are like, it's so emotional. It was so powerful. And, you know, I have all these words. Why? Because they're doing what Jesus did for us. And there's nothing more powerful than that, except for the fact, here's one more thing, the fair maiden that he rescued wasn't fair, except for that. She, she was rather bedraggled, had a little problem with, or big problem with prostitution, idolatry, things like that. So he's rescuing her. So that... That's making the story even more intense for y'all? Did I just intensify it for you? I did for me. The greatest heroes of all are those who expend their blood, sweat, and tears to bring about justice and mercy. They're ultimately committed to justice, also ultimately committed to mercy. They're not going to let evil win. And they will have mercy on those who do not deserve mercy. And that's what Jesus did for us. Verse 7. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of our Lord, according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. This idea is just pouring out his mercies on us. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. He loved Israel, he loved his people, delivered them from Egypt because he loved them. It's a little bit of a history of what happened up until the time of Isaiah, that he loved his people so much, rescued his people from Egypt and so forth. But then he says they must be a children who do not lie. Now that's very interesting. I think that is because those who are really saved are those, well, first of all, who need to be saved, and those who are not like steadfastly self-deceived and self-righteous and blame-shifting and proud and lying about their condition, you know what? People like that aren't going to be saved. They're going to go to hell. People are like, I'm okay. I'm doing great. It's the other guy who's worse than me. They're going to hell. They're lying. They're deceived themselves. And they're not going to make it. Now, of course, it's by God's grace that we're humbled. Praise God. He humbles us, enables us to see our our indebtedness, our wretchedness, our our blood guiltiness, our our need for God's salvation. It's only the mercy of God that 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 happens to us. But brothers and sisters, all liars are going to hell. 
what Revelation 21 tells us. All liars will be cast into hell fire. Why? Because they lied about their need for salvation. They said they didn't need it. They lied about it. And now they're going to burn in hell forever because they kept saying, I don't need your salvation, God. I don't need your salvation. When really they didn't need it. And for that lie, they will burn in hellfire forever and ever. Why it says here that these are children who will not lie. So he became their savior. He identifies with them. He sees them as his own family. He comes to sympathize with them in their afflictions. Verse 9, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them again. He bore them and carried them all the days of old. And then verse 10, they broke the relationship. They broke the covenant relationship. This again, speaking of the people of God in the Old Testament. They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. And so he turned himself against them as an enemy. And he fought against them. The catalyst to rebellion is always the grieving of the Spirit. That applies to local churches as much as anywhere. Keep in mind, the Holy Spirit of God is the sensitive nerve ending of the Trinity. Local churches today can easily offend the Holy Spirit of God by the church's compromising, rebellion, internal divisions, hard-heartedness, just like the Old Testament church did. So we have to take this to heart as well. Be warned, brothers and sisters. The, uh, churches do wind up uh, following these, these footsteps and, and denying and rejecting the covenant. And then verse uh, 11 through 14, this is the vision for a grand redemption. Again, not lost at all but continues to come back to the prophet as, as he prophesies, and he's hopeful. And I want you to listen to these as we wrap up. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, where is he who brought them up out of the sea? Where, with the shepherd of his flock, where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name? who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness, that they might not stumble as a beast goes down into the valley, and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. So you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. What is this, the Red Sea? Of course, the foreshadowing or preview of what was to come was the grand work that was still to come. And, and Isaiah understood that. Now, that was that picture of redemption in the Old Testament, but there's a, a much vaster, much more wonderful, much more necessary redemption that needs to happen in the future. Indeed, he was going to come. He was going to redeem his people. He was the great deliverer. He was the good shepherd. He was the restful and peaceful spirit of God upon his people. And we're delivered to the green pastures. We're taken to the fruitful valleys. We're redeemed out of Egypt and taken to the promised land. And so all of these pictures come to bear as we wrap up this morning. But he does it with his mighty arm. He does it with his glorious arm. And that's the piece I want you to take home with you today. He does it with his, his own arm. His glorious arm. We see this throughout Scripture. I'll leave you with a few of these texts. Psalm 89. You yourself crushed Rahab. Who did it? You did it. You yourself crushed Rahab, Egypt like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Deuteronomy 5.15 You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there how? by a mighty arm and a stretched out arm. Isaiah 59.1 Behold, the Lord's arm, hand is not so short that it cannot save. And then finally, this is the most important text. Isaiah 52 and verse 10. The Lord has bared his arm in the sight of all the nations. Meaning he's made it obvious to the nations. He has bared his arm to get her done. To redeem you, to save you. And you say amen to that this morning. Amen. Amen. Yes. God, you came by Jesus to save me. That all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. And then Isaiah 53 and verse 1 asks you the question. All the nations have seen God bearing his mighty arm to get her done. And then the question for you is the only application today. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To you? They 
The children of Israel didn't see it. They didn't see it. Only Joshua and Caleb. Two out of two million. But my question to you this morning is, have you seen the mighty arm of God in your life? Have you seen it? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Yes, the nations are seeing it all over the world today. But my question to you is, have you seen it? Has the arm of the Lord been revealed to you and to me? You've got to see it. You've got to know it. You've got to feel it. Israel at the Red Sea, the armies of of Pharaoh overcome by the flood, and the scientists gave their naturalistic explanations. It was a big wind just came up. Very rare. Happens once every like 400 years. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Will you believe it if you saw it? Will you believe it if you didn't see it? Will you believe in the mighty arm of God? Will you hear his words and believe it today? Will you feel the crushing blow? of the mighty arm of God upon your lust habit, your pride, your greed, your selfishness, your idolatries. Can you feel it? Can you see it? Pharaoh's army is destroyed in your life. Can you see it, brothers and sisters? The waves, the winds, the fire, the cloud, the armies overcome by the flood. Can you see it? Has the arm of the Lord been revealed to you? He will do this for his own glory, his glorious arm, bringing about a great salvation to make a glorious name for himself that will resound to the praise of the glory of his grace for all eternity. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father God, oh, that we would see your power, your mighty arm working bringing this redemption to us, grabbing us, pulling us into your arms, redeeming us from the hand of the enemy. And oh, that we would see it, feel it, hear it, experience it, as we see the Lamb of God on Calvary, bearing our sins upon himself and overcoming sin and Satan and death for us forever. Oh, God, Spirit of God, fill us, join with us, help us to see it. This is all your work. May it be done in us today. In Jesus' name. Glorious Jesus. Glorious redemptive work he has done by his glorious arm in our salvation. So we come to his table and the same thing occurred with people in the Old Testament delivered from the powers of Egypt. The very first thing that happens is they begin to be fed by the rock and by the heavenly food. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. And there they were, released and redeemed, right? All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. We see all those pictures of the Old Testament now fulfilled in the New Testament with us. And then later on in that chapter we find that, well, God killed his people in the wilderness. You say he killed his people, what's up with that? Well, they got into idolatry. They went back into the world. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Then 1 Corinthians 11 warns us about taking the Lord's Supper unworthily where there's malice towards brothers in this congregation or sisters, where there's unforgiveness or unconfessed sexual sin in, in the life of the believer. It says some have gotten sick and some have even died over this kind of thing. It doesn't mean that that's the reason for all the sickness and all the death. That's not true. But as a warning, that's all it is, a warning. 
It's a warning for us. But why, why this? Why the dead bodies? Why the killings? I think it's good to ask yourself that. And I started with, God is passionate. God's a jealous God. God has a jealousness about this table. He has a jealousness about how we view the blood of his son. He cares. He's concerned. God is real. God's personal. God's in relationship. He responds to us. He's watching us right now. He's watching each and every one of us. How are you reaching for this table? Do you have unconfessed sexual sin in your life? Do you have a disruption of relationship with your brothers and sisters? God is watching us. He's a jealous God. Deuteronomy 6.14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples all around you, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. He's jealous. You ever seen a jealous husband? He does not lackadaisical about his wife's infidelity, is he? Like, oh, whatever. God isn't that way. God cares about his people's idolatries. It says, be careful lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Exodus 34, you shall destroy their altars, speaking of the Canaanites, break their sacred pillars down, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. His name is jealous. Unless you should make covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. So is God still jealous? I think that's the question I want to ask. He was jealous in the Old Testament. Is he still jealous? Does he still care? Or is he still like, whatever, you guys can do whatever idolatry you want. I don't really care. Is that the way God is? I don't take that from Scripture. God is still very jealous. But I want to say positively. Let's not just go to the negative on this. Let's go to the positive. God wants your love. God wants you to love Jesus, his son. That's what he wants. And it seems like he's very passionate about this. He wants your love. In fact, Paul says to the Corinthians, if anybody doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty strong language still. In Revelation 2, Jesus comes to the church at Ephesus, and really some of these words are some of the harshest or the most severe in all these letters they had lost their first love. They seemed to be a intellectually, you know, on their game kind of a congregation. They had the right doctrine. They were opposed to bad doctrine. But Jesus said, you lost your first love. And he says, if, if you don't regain, if you don't repent of that and start to love Jesus again and love his people and love his church If you don't get that love back, I'm going to come, I'm going to pull your candlestick out. I'm going to remove you from fellowship with me as a church body. So, I think this should make sense. that We should love Jesus. I'm not believing this is a heavy burden. We respond to the message that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We, in faith, believe that. We trust in Jesus. We appreciate his gift. We understand his love for us. And then we respond in love for him. So I think this makes sense. If if you receive Jesus' love, if you drink of his blood, which he says you need to drink of my blood, if you're going to drink of his blood, and this is a symbol of that, if you drink of his blood because you know you need his blood to cleanse your insides, from all your sins, so you you know you need his blood. You're drinking his blood, and that's really quite a gift. If you're receiving his blood and believing in his blood to cleanse you from your sins, and you know his love for you, then don't hate him. Okay? I mean, I think that's that should be obvious. Don't don't be cold to him. Love him. Love him. That's all. Just love Jesus. 
That's the encouragement as we come to the table. As you take the cup, as you take the bread today, I encourage you to just say these words. I do love you, Jesus. I do love you. For you have loved me first. and You've given yourself for me. So confess your love to Jesus as you take the cup. You take the bread. Those of you visiting, take a look at the back of our bulletin. We have a little bit on how we participate of the table here in this church. So we ask that you would read that and comply with it. Thank you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the love of Jesus. This is not a difficult thing to receive your love and to, to know that you redeemed us, you saved us, you, you rode into camp, you actually redeemed us by shedding your own blood. And we're not really sure how all of that works, but that's okay. We, we just know that it is the blood of Jesus that brings about our redemption and that you set us free from the bondage of sin and Satan by the blood that you shed for us on the cross. Jesus, you've been good to us. Jesus, you have loved us. Jesus, you did all this for us. Jesus, we love you. Father God, all of this for us. Today we just receive that. We receive your love. And we just love you. And we would not turn back to idols. Or any other competing God. No, no, no. No more. No more. We love you. We want to serve you. We want to be a warm church, a very warm church, on fire for Jesus, on fire for love. In his name, amen.